The sponsor for today's episode is Gravity Fit. Gravity Fit is a great feedback device, and they're helping to fill the white space between knowing what is happening in your golf swing and actually making a change. As motor learning and effective practice is heating up, Gravity Fit is making equipment and instructional content that fits squarely into this space by providing real-time feedback on posture and movement quality. PGA Tour winner Cameron Smith is a huge advocate for the products, using them for anything from gym work to pre-round warm-up to hitting full shots on the range. Cam realizes the importance of being provided with consistent feedback on his posture and movement, simply going through his usual routines or really trying to make a technical change. Cam knows there's a strong relationship between his body moving right and his ball striking and gravity fit is a key part of ensuring that he is on the right track. The feedback that Gravity Fit really gives is fantastic. Check out how it works. The best thing that you can do is watch a video. We have one over on our site, golfsciencelab.com slash gravity fit. We have a bunch of videos there. You can head over to gravityfit.com to learn more. They have an article on there so you can see how Cam incorporates Gravity Fit into his prep. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking with leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Cordy Walker. And throughout this year, we're going to introduce a new recurring series. The working title is How to Be a Tour Pro. The idea is to look at how players actually develop skills and get so good. Now, everyone we talk to will not be a top-level tour pro because there are great stories to tell at all levels of success and not the success someone is looking for in, in all stages here. And the idea is that we'll understand how we develop skill. This is going to be a, a great tool, a great resource for you know golfers, coaches, parents, juniors. And at the end of this, uh, hopefully the book that I'm working on will be done on this similar topic using these stories and interesting things that we find over the course of this year. So stay tuned for that, How to Be a Tour Pro. That's our, our working title. And we're going to kick off this series with an interesting piece of research that I came across late last year. It's from Mark Piling. He played golf, played at a high level. He decided to stop playing and started coaching. And along the way, he's been working on this research while getting his master's on a topic that's near and dear to his heart and his story. I remember thinking that I can offer more to the game than what I was doing. I just wasn't enjoying it. I wasn't enjoying the travel. I wasn't enjoying being away from home every week, living out of a suitcase, pretty average hotels and eating pretty average food. And I just felt with my experiences that I'd had that I could really make a difference to other people. And that's where I am, still am today. I, I genuinely believe I can and um, provide advice to other people that will, will help them not necessarily succeed where I failed, um, just for my experiences and, and now backing it up with some academic science as well, really. Based on Mark's experiences, he set out to take a more tactical look at what was going on in this world of pro golf. The mini tours that are below the main tour, uh, for him, he was looking at the below the European tour. So we have the Europro and, and Challenge Tour. And the paper that he published is called The Rise and Fall of Golfing Capital, a Qualitative Case Study of Former Tour Golfers. You can see that paper over on the post that goes along with this podcast on the website. And first, uh, I'll let Mark explain a quick overview of what this is about. 
the purpose of the study initially was to retrospectively track the journeys of seven former tour pros. So I basically wanted to know from their from right from their childhood, um, how did they get into the game? Uh, what were their early experiences within the game and how did they progress? And what were their experiences as they progressed through the, the talent pathway, as it were? And then the second part of the the research was looking at what were their experiences as they transitioned from being an amateur to a pro. And then the final bit was actually what made them drop out of, of being professional golf and where did they go next? So it was really a, a, a look at their whole career span to date. The, the lads were were now in their kind of late 20s, early 30s, the majority of the sample. So the players that Mark talked to were in their late 20s, early 30s at the time of his study here. They had all been national amateur winners. They had won national titles when they were younger. These are all English guys. Five of seven of them had played on the national team and the majority played on the Pro or the Challenge Tour. Three of them played in, in the Open. They had qualified and gotten into that as well. None of them had gotten to the European Tour, had gotten their card, that is, on the European Tour. He interviewed them two to three years after they had stopped playing full-time. The average time that these guys were on tour was six years. The average age turning pro was 21, and the average age that they stopped by was 28. So we're going to talk through the timeline of this study. We're going to start off with what these players did at a really young age and work all the way till why they decided to stop playing professionally. So we are going to start off how they got good, how they got better than most as young golfers. So the first thing that, that was interesting in part one in their, their early their early days of, of talent development, early days of actually getting into golf, really. One of the interesting findings was they all came from a multi-sport background. So there was very, very much a, a non-specialization focus. So they, the lads played football. All of them played football to, to, to some to a relatively high standard. Two lads played for Premier League Academy teams. There was tennis, hockey, athletics, cross country, snooker and squash. There were lots and lots of sports going on at the ages of between the ages of eight and twelve, and the second thing that brought them to golf was it, they all had a very strong family connection to golf, uh, mainly through the father. Um, a couple of the guys had brothers that played as well, but it was a very strong connection. It was an already established connection through uh, through the game, and that's how they initially got into it. And then following that, there was a very very quick kind of quick period where they just got the golf bug. They started to play a lot of golf with with older people. Um, older juniors, they started to participate in a lot of deliberate play. Um, I asked the guys about how much did they play versus practice in their early days. And there was a definite, definite shift to um, a lot more play orientation around the ages of between, let's say, nine to, to 13. They played a lot on the golf course. There was a lot of informal games with their friends on the putting green, around the chipping green. And then slowly as they got older, they started to practice a little bit more and play a little bit less. They all had a role model as a, as, a, as a child, whether that was a tour pro at their home club, uh, whether that was a coach or some of the older guys that they hung around with. They all spoke very highly of at least one person who they looked up to and copied, essentially, and learned a lot from, uh, which is something I try and do in my coaching now is to is to match kids up with uh, with people who I, who I know that maybe slightly better than them, but they'll they'll treat them as a role model and accept them into a to their social social circle. The kind of main interest, the other interesting finding from the early days was was the the focus on the actual golf club itself, and I think this is an area that hasn't been researched particularly particularly strongly yet. But actually, the the environment that the kids were were brought up in at the golf club, um, they all had very very competitive junior sections. 
three or four of the guys actually quoted how successful their junior section was and how the competitive opportunities made them made them want to compete more. And they felt that once they were they were achieving in those those opportunities, that their, their 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 kind of perception of competence went up quite quite rapidly. And the club became their second home. They became immersed in the culture of the golf club. Their friends were at the golf club. Mum and dad often would just either play with them at the golf club or drop them off. And it's just a time that it's a, it's a place they, they felt very, very secure in. What about coaches, instructors in the early stages for these players? Yeah, good question. There was very, very little, very little coaching in the early stages, which uh, it actually relates to some of the, the other research that I've found with a guy called Cafaro, who, who wrote in 2012, I think it was. He did a similar study on PGA pros, and he also found that there was very little coaching going on at that early time, and that then he argued that socialization was more important than, than actual coaching. The two guys that actually did have coaching at that time later in their careers also saw a lot of coaching as they got older, which I link, linked in my paper, that the relationships we have with coaches as we get older is very much around the guideline, the kind of the the relationships we, we form as, as young people. For example, if a player is, is taught very technically to begin with, they are more likely to refer back to that at a later stage in their career. And that, and that definitely happened in my study. Lots of good stuff in here. These are the traits of an environment that develops elite level golfers, how juniors can reach this high level. And I'm fascinated by this conversation of if this is what you think or what you thought before hearing this, or if it was something different, I I would love to know kind of how you think junior golfers become really good. Shoot me an email, hey, golfsciencelab.com, or it would be awesome to just start a conversation on Twitter, at Golf Science Lab or at Cordy Walker. Curious if these stages of early development, do you agree, disagree, something missing? Yeah, let me know. All right, on to the next stage of development. All the lads got, um, got selected for the county around about the age of 14 to 15. They all played for the county wherever they, wherever they were based. And they found this transition from club to county very easy. It's quite quick. They quickly assimilated themselves in their county teams very, very quickly. Uh, they spoke of a little bit of nerves at the first event, but they soon found their feet and, and, and got on well for the county. And then, and they spoke very much of the same transition from county level to national level when they played for England, how they assimilated themselves with the, with the national team pretty readily as well. One thing that we, we found that they, they missed out on by, because the transition was so quick, that they missed out on the opportunity to upskill themselves in the in, in psychological skills. So, for example, the performance evaluation wasn't really required because they were doing really well. So there was nobody to to say to to ask them to reflect on their performances. And arguably later in their life, when they turned pro and they and the, and the transition from being amateur to pro, that they needed those skills at that point. But they really didn't need them prior to then. But in hindsight, I believe that they, that they they could have been taught those skills at that particular age. When I think it's crucial that they start to to show those psychological behaviours for later in life when when the transition from being an amateur to pro wasn't quite so easy. So these players distinguished themselves as great amateur players. Were they top twenty in England or? Yeah, the top. Yeah, that all be. I think six out. Of, let me think. I would say five out of seven were top 20 players for England at junior level. So in your, you know, looking at this, how did these players become better than the other thousands of junior golfers that playing? How did they become top 20? What would be some of the traits that you see up until this point? 
I would say a massive enthusiasm for the game, a love of the game. I would say that the juniors were very, very competitive. The players were very, very competitive. They all spoke of the, the love of competition and the love of also competing with older players. I would say that the, they all found clubs where the junior section was very competitive and there was lots of opportunities to play. And just the overall social social environment that they inhibited they were, was just all conducive to becoming a good golfer. You know, they, they ticked a lot of boxes that, 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 that their dads played. They were quite sporty kids. I think that's really, really important that they had played, come from a multi-sport background. So they found it, I wouldn't say easy, but they found it that they could do it quite quickly. And, and just having the environment where they could participate in lots of deliberate play, just, just, do, just do lots of it. Um, and I think almost that, that they're the ingredients that made them so good in the first place. However, I think they missed out on the, the need for the psychology skills at that particular period because they, they weren't aware of them. You know, we don't know what we don't know. Could you define deliberate play? I would say deliberate play is more around play on the golf course when they're actually um, without, I would say deliberate play is without too much structure at an early age. So by too much structure, I mean too many technical thoughts happening, too many um, alignment sticks to home when they practice. I would define it as a as a more unstructured way of playing golf. And I think that the kids find that automatically. They find their own challenge point pretty readily. You know, when the kids play, I watch them around the putting green now at our home golf club and they, you know, it starts off quite easy then within 10 minutes they're finding the most hardest positions around the around the chipping green. And they also they pick their uh, their opponents which are generally well matched or just somebody a little bit better than them. So again, they're picking that challenge point that stretches their skills. I think we just lose that a little bit as we get older. So we've gone through the amateur career. Next step, time to turn pro. Okay, so the decision to turn pro for for six out of the seven players was brought on by being dropped from the uh, the national team. And this was obviously quite a common theme with with most of the guys deciding after they've 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 so they've gone through into the national team, they've either played for England or been in the squad for a couple of years. The England team is is moving on and they haven't been selected for the next year, so they decide to to turn pro. And a lot of the guys talked about having nowhere else to go. They felt they'd achieved everything that they could achieve in the in the amateur game. And so they decided to take the plunge and, and turn pro. I believe some of this through the study, we, we looked at how this is is linked to losing symbol, symbolic capital. So basically how they are perceived by others. So they've been in the England team, traveling with the England team, wearing the England jersey to competitions to suddenly um, losing that and turning pro as a way to regain this symbolic capital and reestablish themselves within the, the in, within the hierarchy of the of, of the pro game. And with that came a lot of changes, really. This is the first time that things hadn't gone to plan for some of the players. So, for example, the, the economic pressure of, of, of having to play or pay for events three or fourfold more expensive than they were playing amateur golf. So playing in the Euro Pro was costing some of the guys between six and seven hundred pounds a week. And then on the Challenge Tour, even more. And, and despite the, the prize funds not being that, that good, so they, they found it difficult, for the, for, certainly for the economics in the, in the early stages. One of the main biggest changes for, for the guys was the change of coaching relationships. This was huge for five, five out of the seven guys. All decided that they needed to change their swing. And they went down the, the perfection route of trying to perfect their golf swing. And for all of the guys, it didn't, it, it didn't work out. They, they, they look back and say they definitely regret trying to change or perfect their golf swing. And, and they all spoke very, very highly of, of one coach, one national coach, who is actually 
teaching one of the tour players now, just that they regret not not sticking with one guy uh, who they all described as working with what the player had got rather than trying to trying to chase perfection and working within the realms of what they could do physically and what and within the realms of what they thought they could do mentally as well whether they they thought they could make the change and they they just spoke about the wanting to keep it simple or they wish they'd kept it simpler in terms of the technique Huge transitions here, no doubt. So these players made the jump from amateur to pro level. The impact of going from a team environment, being on the the English amateur team, the national team, suddenly you're out there, you're solo, you're alone, you've got all these new things to deal with, to cope with. Huge shift in something that, you know, you could see it's, it's far more than just golf, far more than golf swing, far more than core strategy. There's a lot of things to cope with here as these guys made this jump from that high level amateur status to starting out as a pro so the majority of guys just either maintained a challenge tour card or they maintained a euro Euro pro card card tour status so they they continued to play euro pro and they you know guys had won on the euro pro i don't think anybody had won on the challenge tour but they'd certainly kept the card for two or three or four years um with occasional european tour starts as well a few of the guys who had had european tour starts almost felt like it was easier than playing on the challenge tour because they had less expectation. So they had less expectation about their results. The pressure was off, so to speak, because they weren't expected to do well. So actually they, they turned out and did it, did okay, I think. Whereas the challenge tour, they felt that they were there to win. They know they had, they had to win to keep up. And so the pressure mounted a little bit more. So, and they did okay to, to keep that, but they couldn't break through to the European tour. And then consequently, I think that drove the, the motivation to try and start well okay some of the guys quoted like okay i need to i need to make my game more consistent and that equals you know working on my swing and getting that more technically orthodox so the ball flight will be more consistent and and i'll perform better and that led them then to a path of, of seeking perfection and they would see other guys working with tournament coaches on the on the range and their friends as also and working with these tour coaches and so they get swept along into um, in that route really All of the guys had some form of sponsorship, whether that was through a management group or whether that was through personal or private sponsors from their home golf clubs. A couple of the guys lost their sponsorship halfway through, um, which had a massive influence, or kind of a devastating impact on their their ambitions because they, they suddenly had all their their funding stopped essentially, and that tended to happen when they well, obviously when they weren't winning, so they weren't um, weren't weren't doing as well. A couple of the guys had management companies who supported them. But they again, once the once the results weren't coming in, they, they the management companies pulled out. So it's very much a results orientated world in terms of the sponsorship. It lasted for a couple of years, but then then ran out. A couple of guys spoke of quite being quite lonely when they're on the tour, um, and and they felt that it was a big change. The transition from being national team to to uh, to pro level. One of the biggest changes was that, was the loss of the team environment. Um, so we've got the Ryder Cup this week, but uh, they felt that they'd grown up playing team games, county games, national games, which are all based on a team stuff, to suddenly you know, you're on your own. And they found that, uh, that, that quite challenging. You know, the fascinating thing about this is that 
they average six years playing professional golf. That is way more than I personally would have guessed. They gave it their best. They obviously had some element of patience. They had some element of being able to make a living and financially support themselves. But at the end of it, unfortunately, none of them were able to get beyond the challenge tour and, and get a card on the European tour. They, they were never able, never able to accomplish that goal. And eventually that tough decision had to happen of, is it time to stop playing? It hasn't happened over these six years. You know, is it ever going to happen? Should I do something else? And that is a question that they all had to face. So the decision to stop, the the choice to stop playing was made through so uh, often social comparison to other people, mainly outside of golf. At the ages of uh, kind of late 20s, they started to see their friends do quite well in other jobs in other industries and i think they felt quite a lot of social pressure to 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 do something more financially viable i suppose at that particular point i think early in the 20s they gained a lot of social capital by by being the pro you know it's quite a nice thing to tell people when you're in your early 20s you're you're a tournament golfer and i think as the time presses on and the the money becomes less and the friends outside of golf are doing uh, buying houses and having families and so on I think there was a certain element of, of social pressure to to either say, right, we we either do better at this or, or, or we stop. And that was the main trigger for the guys. It was it wasn't an overnight process. That there was a there was a certain kind of reckoning, a coming together of of their thoughts over I would say over six months that the guys started to not enjoy it, didn't like the travelling as much, um, didn't like to be away from girlfriends or wives if they had them at that time. So it certainly was a process rather than a a singular event that that, that they stopped um, stopped playing. The process to stop playing was over six or seven months, six to 12 months, I would say, actually, that a seed had been planted at some point that they, it wasn't working out. But it certainly wasn't an overnight decision that they, they get the, to, to stop playing. And in terms of emotions, I, I, the, the, a lot of the guys spoke of relief. They felt relieved by the, when, they, when they stopped playing. One of the sample actually gave his sponsor all his money back um, and just said he didn't want it. He, you know, he was very thankful for somebody helping him, but he actually felt relieved that the pressure was off and that he, he, they explained that now they could go in ahead and enjoy their golf again. I think at least half of the sample suggested that playing golf professionally was one of the, the only times they've stopped actually enjoying it. And it was a, it was a relief to stop. And now they can uh, they went back to playing amateur golf uh, and they and they now love it again. I wanted to know from Mark personally what he thought about this. He had spent all this time in in his study having these conversations, thinking about this topic. What is the difference? Why did these players not make it on the European tour? What is the gap that separated them from where they were and where they wanted to go? I believe, in hindsight, the reason that what separated these guys who were high achievers, who got to Euro Pro to Challenge Tour, but didn't make the step to the European Tour and retain their card on the European Tour. I believe it was down to the psychosocial skills that were lacking as developmental players. I think there was a big period where they missed out on the on the PCDEs that, that Dave Collins and Annie McNamara talk about, such as performance evaluation, goal setting, planning. I felt that these were missed through the transitions from county to uh, to national and then national to, uh, to to pro level. Just because they weren't needed, the transitions were quite comfortable. And I think in hindsight, actually, to get over these the transitions from when life becomes hard or the, or the, the, the bumps in the road, as, as some people call it, those are the skills that were required. 
So, for example, filtering out when to listen to a coach or when to listen to a, a person or a peer, or another player who's telling you to do something, and having the, the kind of reflective skills to to not going down rabbit holes, I think is is one of the king things that was missed out on. I think physically, having known the guys and seen them play and played with them physically, they were all up there. They were all very, very good players. They hit the ball far enough, performed well enough, physically strong enough. They were, they, you know, they were all, all pretty athletic. So I, I don't believe it was the physicality. I think it's more the, 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 the psychology and then the, the sociology around that as well. Who they hung around with when they turned pro, who they associated themselves with, was the thing that was uh, was lacking. And so one of the, a lot of the play, things we do with, with, with my young players now, we, we spend a lot of time trying to develop the psychological develop skills to, to develop excellence. It's one of the areas that I think is, uh, is crucial. And finally, one of the most important and practical things from this conversation, from this study, is how should we or what could we change in our approach towards developing junior golfers? And I, I just asked Mark, how has this impacted your coaching? How has this impacted what you do with the junior golfers at your club, in your academy? You know, you're preparing them to play golf. And he had some really interesting thoughts on, on how this has impacted him. Undoubtedly, the study has led me to develop the psychology and, and the sociology perspectives much more during the, the developmental years for the, for the kids, for the young juniors that I work with. So we, we work a lot on goal setting. We work a lot on evaluating performance. We work a lot on imagery and we work a lot on, on all the psychology, psychology skills that, that really step it up. Quality practices is, is, is key for us here to making sure that the kids are practicing in a good way. And, and, and club golf is one of my favorite questions to ask a, to any golfer who I work with is, is what do you see as a quality practice session? You know, how, how do you think you should take this information and, and work on it? And it uh, always comes out with some quite interesting answers and very often quite quite a blank, blank looks. So I think this is one of, you know, one of the areas that you've helped the, the industry with is, is this how the idea of, of actually taking the information that you get from a coach or, or, or wherever it comes from and actually putting it into place through, through quality practice. That's one of the key things that I, I believe. And the second thing is is linking the players up with with other people, other players that I, I know will will help them. So we we match up uh, role models. Really, we, we put the younger kids with some of the older kids to to, to play. We play foursomes, we play greensomes, and we play Stablefords and medals, and we we mix all the kids up together. Um, so really, some of the younger guys get exposure to the older guys. Which your idea of the project even par has gone really really well. That's been that's been fantastic. We've we've, we've regular groups now. We've got three groups a week doing that. And that's really, really helped players reflect on performances from different areas, different lengths of course, and different week to week. And I've seen some of the older, some of the, the younger guys have seen the older guys flip the lid a little bit when they've when they've had a bad round, but they've come back at the next week and actually really changed their attitude to, to, to bad shots and pulled it together. So it's been an eye opener. This has been really fun. What a great conversation. Thank you, Mark, for coming and hanging out, sharing your study and being so open about what you've learned and your experiences and all that good stuff. Thank you so much. Make sure to say thank you to him on Twitter at Mark, M-A-R-K-P-I-L-L-I-N-G-P-G-A. Go look him up. Say thank you. If you have a question, make sure to Send him a tweet. Let him know that you listen. Let him know you enjoyed it. Appreciate it. If you want to check out the study, the PDF of that is over on the post along with this podcast on the website, golfsciencelab.com. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions.